Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our reaction to the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 matchups. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about the Final Four. So let's start by picking out two games each from the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 that we want to talk about. Jalen, what is the first game from the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight that you want to talk about? So the first one that I want to talk about came from the Sweet 16, and that was Michigan dismantling Florida State. I mean, I could not have anticipated the kind of butt whooping that Michigan put on Florida State. One of of Florida State's lead guys, Raekwon Gray, was held to only eight points in the game. MJ Walker only had 10. Scotty Barnes was coming off the bench and gave them eight points overall. Somehow, they relegated their offensive output to under 60 points a game where a guy in Malik Osborne off the bench who typically averages like just under six points per game was the team's leading scorer with 12 points and they all came off threes. Now, when you go look over at Michigan, mind you, this is a Michigan team that's playing without Isaiah Livers, a guy who was going to be extremely huge for them come this postseason run, and a guy that when we talked to the Robinson bros, they felt was going to be a big reason why they would or would not be able to reach the Final Four. And he, he, this team has not lost a beat at all. Uh, Franz Wagner, a guy who is a legit you know, potential lottery, NBA lottery prospect continues to kind of pile on his um, his resume, why he should be within the top seven to nine, um, as he had a cool 13 and 10 with five assists on just nine shots. Then you throw in our guy out of Maryland, Hunter Dickinson, who had 14 points, eight rebounds. That was very huge on their front as well at the big man spot. And next to him was Brandon Johns Jr., who had pretty much similar shooting splits, 14.6 rebounds. Him and Dickinson both shot five of 10 from the floor. Um, I mean, this was just a team that just outgunned Florida State from top to bottom. And, I mean, it was ridiculous how it took place. I mean, they won the rebounding battle, which was one of the bigger things. They won it 37 to 31. But other than that, they didn't really dominate Florida State in any way that should make you think that this game was supposed to be as lopsided as it was. Now, I guess you could argue that it would be the offensive rebounding was the fact that that went from 11 in favor of Michigan to nine uh, for for Florida State, but that's not a significant enough gap. So when you look at it overall, the only other thing I can point to is the aggressiveness of Michigan in terms of being legitimately physical inside and around the paint the biggest thing that stood out to me had to be the free throw shooting florida state was five of six from the free throw line michigan was 15 of 23 michigan state i mean michigan sorry be uh outshot florida state by triple at the free throw line if there's anything that's going to be a a needle mover 
in this game, if there's anything that can stand out overall in terms of pure domination, it has to be their aggressiveness around the around the basket and significantly knocking down their free throws and getting legitimate calls. 23 free throw attempts in the game as in comparison to Florida State with uh with only six. I mean, talk about just being out hustled, out played, out physical. Like that's literally what Florida State was. Michigan was just the better team overall and played with a little bit more heart. And I hate, I hate this for Scotty Barnes because I mean, considering the circumstances, he was 0 for 3 from the three-point line. He only had one rebound in the game, three assists. He did have a steal and a block. He had four, uh, he had four fouls, so he nearly fouled out of the game, and he only had eight points. So I don't necessarily know if this postseason was the great NCAA run that he needed to kind of show us why people are regarding him as a top eight pick in the NBA draft, considering that we're going a lot off of measurables and the eye test as opposed to actual NCAA production. So this is going to be a guy that's kind of similar to Cam Reddish from those Duke year, from that Duke year with Zion Williamson and RJ Barrett, where you kind of wonder was the college, was the lack of college production just a facade for what he can really be on an NBA roster, or is this actually a precursor as to what he'll translate to, which is not very much, but Michigan was just extremely dominant. And that was, that was crazy because Florida state is a really high level defensive team, but that also puts up points and, they didn't do very much of either one of those things against Michigan. I was not expecting an 18-point win from Michigan. I was expecting a very close win for Michigan or a very close win for Florida State. I thought both teams, they had the capability of going to the Final Four. I was actually more thinking that Florida State had that capability rather than Michigan, considering that Isaiah Livers is out or was out for them. But I think that this Florida State team – and the way that they lost, especially with the way that Sky Barnes played, I think the only person that really hurts the most is Sky Barnes because his draft stock is going to, I wouldn't say plummet, but take a slight dip. I think that it's it's going, he's going to probably fall to, I would say the late 20, I would say like the late 10s, maybe early 20s. Um, I think that this is going to be very like interesting to see where he falls. Um in terms of the NBA uh, draft, because I just think that, you know, the way that they struggled in this game, I think the way that Michigan played solid defense on them, that the entire game, the way Michigan was able to go to the foul line so frequently, I think that those were all things that, you know, as a top defensive team in Florida state, it was almost shocking to see that that Michigan went to the line that many times, but, Man, that was that was just a huge, a huge win for Michigan. And it was almost like a statement win going into the Elite Eight. But my Sweet 16 matchup that I want to talk about is Oral Roberts and Arkansas. I feel like this was a game. I feel like that this was a game where it could have gone either way. And it also came down, could have been a game where it came down to the last play. And it did. Um Oral Roberts played well in the first half. Max Admis was able to get 12 points. He finished with 25 in the game. Carlos Jurgens added 11 points in the first half. And then to top it off, Arkansas was struggling. And to add on it, and to add on to that, Arkansas was struggling to shoot from the field and from three. They were one of seven from three in the first half, and they finished one for nine in the game. 
but it was almost a tale of two halves. Arkansas was playing solid defense in the second half and taking less threes. They were getting more of their scoring from driving to the rim. And it seemed like Oral Roberts was was the team that that was struggling in the second half. And then it led to players like uh, Jalen Tate stepping up for this team when they needed him most. He had 22 points to close out the game. And he was actually the player who set up Devontae Davis for the shot that would win the game. But Arkansas, more, more importantly, though, Arkansas was able to attack the glass on offense and they grabbed 18 total or 18 offensive rebounds. They had 46 total in the game and they also got 18 second chance points off of it. So I feel like there was a lot of momentum for Arkansas in that win, but Man, Oral Roberts put up a great showing in this tournament. Um, I think if I, I think if Max Admus, I, I think if uh, I think for Max Admus, this this is probably the time for him to test the waters in the NBA draft. Yeah, I think this was a really good game, and Oral Roberts had them hanging by a thread for the most of the game. Like you said, it was definitely a tale of two halves because Oral Roberts was controlling. I mean, a good a good portion of the first half. I mean, they weren't up by a lot, but they were up by a good amount that had you leaning in their favor. I think the Devontae Davis bucket with 2.9 seconds left, I think the biggest thing that people need to focus on with that is not just how he, that he did it, but how he did it. Such a difficult contested shot. He had to do a rip through back, back off, and it was a bit of a fadeaway as well, leaning backwards to be able to hit it. And he didn't have very much time. I think the other thing to touch on is the history of what Arkansas is doing now. Them getting to the uh, – them uh, or what they what they did in terms of being able to get to the elite eight in the first place was that they they were getting to that that's their first time in 26 years that they've made this kind of advancement so they should be really proud of their circumstances with that being the case and it, it's sad to see them go because they're a team that was been that's been really exciting offensively throughout the year um i think the one thing that stands out to me overall is that in a matchup against a top flight opponent your two guys as a unit were not as elite as they typically are. Now, Admis, I think, held up his end of the bargain with 25 points. He had three threes, eight of 19 from the floor in 40 minutes. But look, and I love the guy, and I personally think that he could be a legit NBA prospect as a guy that's 6'8", 225 pounds at the power forward spot. But Kevin Obernard averages 18.7 points per game and 9.6. In a big game and uh, with the chance to go to the Elite Eight, he had 12 points and 11 rebounds. You need at least typical production, if not out-of-body experience-level production when you're in the NCAA tournament playing against a top-caliber team like Arkansas with a chance to get to the Elite Eight, something that would have been definitely monumental for a 15-seed Golden Eagles team that really has surprised the heck out of everybody so far this season. So I think that overall, I think that Oral Roberts did played as well as they could have. And I think that this was a game that would have been really interesting had there been an overtime in this game, kind of similar to a game that I'm actually going to bring up in a minute. But I mean, Arkansas was to a certain extent, the better team. Uh, they got a lot of production from their top flight guys. They had four guys and double figures in their starting lineup and their top flight guys came to play. I mean, you could say the same thing about Oral Roberts in terms of having four guys with double figures in their in their lineups, but they only play five guys. So, so you're kind of expecting that to be something that really works with them. So, I mean, overall, 
really, really good game from Arkansas, really good got game from Oral Roberts. I'm really intrigued to see what Kevin Obernard and Admins and Admins as well decide to do in terms of whether or not they choose to come back to school or maybe test the waters with the NBA. Because I think they both have very interesting uh, pathways in terms of where their draft stock may or may not have went based on this NCAA run. And I think it's interesting to note that, you know, not only Max Admins, but you know, Kevin Obernor as well, because Obernor had two great games against uh, Florida and Ohio State, two uh, close to 30-point double-doubles um, against two great basketball teams. So I think it's even more interesting to include Max uh, Kevin, Ab- Kevin Obernor in this case because of the fact that he was another great guy or another great player for this tournament. And we mentioned this with the last college basketball episode, Abmus and Obonor made up 73% of this offense. So I feel like if they both leave, this that's a huge loss for Oral Roberts. So I think that it's going to be interesting to see what their decision is going forward if they decide to stay at Oral Roberts or go to the NBA draft. Jalen, what is the second game that you're going to talk about from either the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight? So we have another one of those sweet 16 games. And this is mainly, I had to bring this up out of the fact that this was one of the teams that we were very high on. I plan on doing an article on one of the guys that I'm end up talking about for Alabama. Um, and that's the game. I already gave away one of the teams, Alabama losing to UCLA in overtime. And I mentioned earlier that it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened with Oral Roberts and Arkansas had they went to overtime at the game with the game being 70 to 70, even with some extra time. Well, we got to see an OT game with these two, and it was a really good show out um, where the 11 seed UCLA Bruins just keep on chugging, man. I mean, this is insane. I mean, Alex Reese hits a buzzer beater three to um, at to at regular at the end of regulation to move things to overtime. And then, boy. Jamie Jaquez Jr. goes crazy, opens up the opens up the overtime with two big buckets to kind of kick things off. And you kind of almost felt like, oh, <laughs> the momentum's moving to the to to the 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 Bruins, the uh the Bruin Bruins, because they were they were cooking up some some big boy shots down the line. And you know, Jaquez had 17 points in the game. Juzang had 13 and four. Um, another guy who came up pretty huge for them off the bench was a guy in David Singleton who had 15 points and had three big threes in the game as well, uh, which I thought was really huge for them. And then when you look at Alabama, your All-American did not step up. He did not step up at all. And I'm kind of concerned about how that whole thing went. The dude, Herb Jones, my guy, third team. He's a third teamer. All um all, on in the all con um for the all country all county team for the all country teams, and um eight points nine rebounds. Um, again, big game with a chance to go to the elite eight. Your bit your best players have to stand out. John Petty Jr. played ridiculous. He he led the team in minutes played with 42 we basically never came off the floor had 16 points and five rebounds but struggled from three two or seven from three that's gonna hurt and then Javon Quinterly the guy that I actually want to write about as a legitimate potential second round prospect um at the point guard position he played 35 minutes off the bench and he was the team's leading scorer with 20 points 
but he struggled from three as well. Two of seven from three, um, from three to eight of 22 from the floor overall. He, although he was their most productive player, that unfortunately was not enough. Now, I'm interested to see how he ends up, you know, addressing his NBA draft stock as a guy, a 6'1", really good facilitator, very good overall as a floor general. He's a guy who I think, I believe he won. Um, he was the SEC tournament MVP uh, for Alabama's run as well. Has been a guy who since moving from Villanova, transferring from Villanova, he has really kind of made a name for himself. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what he sees, what he does this offseason. But UCLA is in the final four now. And they had to catch a body like Alabama, a team that we thought was going to be in the final four, representing the SEC. They had to catch that body on the way. So UCLA as a 11 seed, Man, they they have been really interesting and really fun to watch so far this year. And this this was one of their biggest wins, uh, probably in program history. Jalen, you forgot to mention one thing about that overtime period with uh with UCLA. Who were they not playing with against Alabama in the overtime period? Who fouled out late in the game, late in the second half? Johnny oh, Juzang. You're right. They oh, they played th- this is why I was saying this team is dangerous because this team proved that this team proved that they can win, they can hold the fort down, they 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 can win games without their leading score. That's maybe the most impressive part. Not the fact that they beat Alabama with four great scorers in their own right, in Herb Jones, uh John Petty, uh um Javon Quinterly and Jaden Shackelford, it was the fact that UCLA held them down without Johnny Juzang, which caused Jamie Jaquez Jr. to step up in that overtime period to get the buckets that, or to, to get the points that UCLA needed to beat Alabama. So I don't know if it was more, I don't know what's more impressive that they did without uh, Johnny Juzang or that they beat Alabama with four, uh, with, with four great scorers on their team, first team, all SEC first team, all SEC second team, all SEC third team guys on their team. But I just think that UCLA's run to the tournament has been nothing short of miraculous, and it continues when I talk about UCLA versus Michigan. This run, Jalen, this UCLA run defines what March Madness is all about. Mm -hmm. This is a team that comes seemingly out of nowhere, to surprise us all. And this team has overcome a lot of adversity this year. They lose Chris Smith, their leading scorer. They lose four straight going into the NCAA tournament. They go from first four to final four. <laughs> and then you talk, we talked about John, we talked about Johnny Juzang um, and the effect that he had um, against Alabama, the effect that he had in this, uh, the, the effect that he had in this entire tournament. He had 28 points against Michigan. But all, and then, you know, also, what a game by UCLA on defense. They hold Michigan to 49 points as a team, and Michigan struggled from the field and from three. Now, granted, UCLA struggled as well from the field and from three. But Michigan's leading scorer in that game was Hunter Dickinson. He had 11 points. Mm. Johnny Juzang was the leading scorer on UCLA. He had 28. And in comparison, UCLA's second leading scorer 
was Tiger Campbell with 11 points. Cody Riley, Jamie Jaquez Jr., and Jules Bernard all had four points. They had no scoring from their bench. Zero. Zero points past the starting lineup. Franz Wagner has four points in that game. Mike Smith has three points. Sean D. Brown and Eli Brooks both have eight. But I feel like the big the big thing that really stood out to me was these turnovers by Michigan. I mean, it, it seemed like to be a recurring theme throughout the game that Michigan was turning the ball over um, in the crucial moments when the game mattered most. And then the final sequence, um, it was Smith, I believe, who took the first game winner and he or the first the first three pointer that missed. And then they gave the ball back to Wagner and he missed a potential game winner again. I think that's a sequence where Isaiah Liver should have been out there because I think that he's the guy who they should have given the ball to in the final moments. But I mean, what what a run by UCLA. And they're gonna face Gonzaga, who uh I mean, if you remember a couple of years ago, I think it was 15 years ago, Gonzaga faced UCLA and they they pulled off a they pulled off a slight upset to make it to the Elite Eight by by beating the Adam Morrison led. Gonzaga team and that was that was a great team in its own right and are we going to see history again is UCLA going to beat Gonzaga I think that's the real question going into Saturday yep I mean I think that's going to be one of the bigger things when it comes to the storyline is that you know UCLA UCLA is the lowest seed left I mean there's a one a one and a two I mean, the most unprecedented run. Michigan had been so dominant throughout the year. Um, you lose livers, and that kind of didn't really deter them very much. I wonder what his production would have been like against a team like UCLA, um, considering how much he commands offensively, I felt like more than ever, uh, especially we saw that a lot throughout the season. Um it's going to be really interesting to see how things go when it comes to them versus Gonzaga, because when I was looking at that side of the bracket, the teams that I thought were going to be significant threats to the Zags either got murdered the way Gonzaga completely trounced USC, which I thought was like insane. Granted I had Oregon coming out of that game between Oregon and USC, but nonetheless, you know, USC got slaughtered. It was probably, we're actually going to probably talk about this game in a little bit because I actually had my, one of my players of the of the of the last two rounds came from this game, and then you know when you look at it at, at the way they've just been able to run through teams all year, it's going to be really interesting if to see whether or not UCLA is just another severed head on the wall or if they're a legit if they have an actual legit puncher's chance because so far no team has been able to even. I guess even fluster Gonzaga really this season. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, UCLA is the lowest seed left in the tournament, and you know, as an eleven seed, they have a chance to do something that hasn't been done before by an eleven seed, and that's make it to the championship. So, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of optimism for UCLA to be able to pull off this upset, but. Um, Jalen, you mentioned that you were going to talk about one of the teams um, in the final four. So I just want to get to you, or I just want to um, start with you on this one as we move to our big performances. Who is the, what, what is one big performance that you're going to be looking at? 
So I think it's going to definitely have to be Jalen Suggs because he's coming off a really good game against USC to help them propel to this point. And I know that the guy that everybody's going to point to is Drew Timmy. And trust me, I shouted him out last time we did this when we did the first uh, breakdowns for the first two rounds of the tournament. He had 23 and five points. He shot 10 of nine, uh, 23 points and five rebounds. My apologies. And he shot 10, 10 of 19 from the floor. But this dude, Jalen Suggs, nearly had a triple-double with 18 points, 10 rebounds, and 8 assists, shooting 7 of 11 from the field with two threes in the game. This is also a Gonzaga team that pretty much is playing five deep at this point. I mean, outside of their initial starting lineup with Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, Jalen Suggs, Andrew Nimhart, and Joel Ajayi, Outside of that, the only other guys who played at least 10 minutes in this game, first one that comes to mind is Anton Watson in this game. He played 17 minutes, but he was just there for the fouls. Dude got three fouls in 17 minutes and only got one shot up with four rebounds. Then the only other dude outside of that off the bench will be Aaron Cook. And he had 10 minutes, hit um, hit two three-pointers, came out with eight points on the game with eight with, uh, with two rebounds as well. It was two of two from three. It was pretty much his only shots of the game. So this is a team that's playing through their starting five, considering the talent level was there. You're going to win with the guys who brought you to the dance. So Jalen Suggs is a guy who is still, you know, in the tournament, one of the only, if we look across the board, he's one of really the only other top flight NBA prospects left. They took out USC, uh, Oklahoma State's been out. Arkansas it was knocked out in uh, in the uh, in the Elite Eight as well, so I mean he's he's pretty much the last top flight prospect left outside of Corey Kispert, so it's Gonzaga's chance to kind of help lobby him as a legit top two pick, rather than being this guy that's been fighting for third and fourth, maybe even fifth in some people's eyes. So my eyes are definitely on Jalen Suggs in this game, the matchup against Tiger Campbell. That'll be really interesting because I think that that one-on-one matchup is going to be very fun to watch. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how both of those guys compete on the defensive end against each other. Because I think offensively, they both can give each other buckets to a certain extent. But how they how they compete on the defensive end next to each other, against each other is going to be what really stands out to me. Because both of those guys can put the ball in the basket. And I think that's an interesting comparison that you made um, with the defensive side, because I think that the defensive matchup is going to be very interesting as well. I think on the offensive side, though, I may have to favor Jalen Suggs on this one, because I think, you know, I see Tiger Campbell as more of a facilitator for this UCLA team. I don't see Campbell as a guy who can go and put 15 or 20 a game, much like, uh, much like Jalen Suggs, but this is Jalen Suggs is, this is Jalen Suggs' chance to solidify himself as a top three pick. I think right now he's a borderline top five pick, but he has, he has two, he has two games right now, or he has two games to prove that he is a top three pick. And I think it's, it's, it more or less just affects his draft stock rather than, you know, Gonzaga's chances of winning the tournament, because as I'm going to talk about with my first big performance, because of Drew Timmy. Now, honestly, we could pull, we could put Gonzaga's starting five in this segment, but I want to focus on Drew Timmy's last two games against Creighton and USC. Against Creighton, he had 22 points, six rebounds, four assists, shooting 71% from the field. Against USC, 23 points, five rebounds, four assists, and three steals, 
on 52.6% shooting from the field. Now, in both games, there was a common denominator. And I talked about this on the last college basketball episode when we were previewing the matchup with Creighton, between uh, Gonzaga and Creighton. If Gonzaga was able to get the ball to Drew Timmy down low early in the game, Gonzaga would be unstoppable and win the game. And that was the case with both the games because Drew Timmy played great early in the game and led the team in scoring against Creighton and USC. So I honestly don't expect anything less from Gonzaga going into the final four because their game plan of getting Drew Timmy the ball early and often has been working not only in this entire season, but also in the tournament. But I but 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 listen to this matchup. UCLA's Cody Riley versus Drew Timmy. Mm. That is going to be a matchup that I want to see. I think that's it's going to be interesting to see the defensive scheme that they use to guard Drew Timmy. Are they going to double Drew Timmy? Are they just going to have uh, Cody Riley on Drew Timmy? Are they going to – I don't really know what the, what the scheme they're going to use is. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how they guard Drew Timmy because I think if, if UCLA is able to stop Drew Timmy, I think they're going to have a chance to win this game. Yeah, I mean, funny enough, the guy that was the least on our radar in terms of this Gonzaga team being as dominant as it's been all year has actually been the guy that's taken the reins as probably their most dominant player. Corey Kispert has been pretty much who he's been all year. Jalen Suggs, I think, has elevated his, his play to a certain extent. But the guy who's really stepped up his game and really solidified himself is Drew Timmy. I really thought that it was going to be Joel Ayayi, but he's pretty much kind of steered the ship. Now, again, I did think that he was going to be the kind of lunch pail, uh, you know, come to work and lock up defensively kind of guy that he has been, who's been, you know, just been kind of getting his shots where he can get them. But the fact that Drew Timmy has played himself all the way up in this, in this, in this manner, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing to see. And it's really funny because of the fact that, you know, we're in a circumstance right now where we're talking about NBA draft picks as we close out the season for the NCAA tournament. And Drew Timmy is a guy that doesn't come up very much. And I'm really starting to wonder whether or not he's a guy who might slowly be playing himself into some legit consideration as a big who can. I mean, I saw him on the fast break the other day as a uh, on a steal against USC where he had a two stepper pull over into a layup and he just looks like a guard out there and it's ridiculous i'll try to make sure that when i post the clip for this i can i can also inc- uh put in the uh the highlight that i'm referring to because i mean it was insane if you guys know what i'm talking about definitely you definitely probably wigging out in your seat right now because it was just a legitimately scary play for a guy um of his size and that's kind of where the game is going now and i mean we're talking about dude 610 nearly 240 pounds moving like a guard, uh, playing big down low. And here's the most important thing about the matchup against USC that I think we can take away from things when it comes to Drew Timmy. He gave the Mobley boys something to deal with. Now, don't get me wrong. They both had good games of their own. Isaiah had 19 points and seven rebounds in the game. Evan, who's supposed to be a top five pick, is starting to be floating around that five range. Um uh, I think with the way that some of these other guys have played, uh, Evan had nine, uh, had 17 points and five rebounds in the game. So, I mean, the fact that Drew Timmy was able to go against two pretty much 
top level bigs coming out of the Pac-12 uh, for USC and the Mobley Bros and able to put in put on such a dominant performance overall in terms of Gonzaga's uh, game against USC. I think you might be right that stopping Drew Timmy might actually have to be the top thing on UCLA's, you know, big board of things that they need to address if they want any chance of being able to take down Gonzaga. And I think that's that's the goal. And I think that's it's it's not so much about stopping Jalen Suggs and stopping Corey Kisper. I think if they are able to stop Drew Timmy, they win this game. I mean, he is the engine for this offense. And they feed him the ball or they get the ball to him early. So if you're able to take out Drew Timmy early in the game, UCLA will, will get a lot more room to, you know, make some shots. I think, I, th- I think the other thing too, is that, you know, this team, this UCLA team has to outscore um, UC uh, has to outscore Villano- or not, not Villanova, Gonzaga um, because you know, when, when you look at, you know, how other teams have played Gonzaga so far in this tournament with Oklahoma and Creighton and USC, these are teams that are trying to outscore them early. I think it's worked mm-hmm. for the most part with Oklahoma and Creighton when they're able to knock down threes early in the game and continuously throughout the game or throughout the game. But I feel like that's going to have to be the case with UCLA because Johnny Juzang, this is a game where he's ha- going to have to maybe put up 30 points and he's going to have to shoot the ball pretty efficiently. I think this is another game where Jamie Chiquez really steps up and takes the reins of this offense as well. I mean, if you get Cody Riley going early down low, I think that's going to be huge for UCLA. So there's just a lot of factors. Um, but yeah, this, this UCLA team could make some noise if they're able to beat Gonzaga like they were able to do 15 years ago. But let's move on to the second big performance that each of us have. Jalen, what is the second big performance that you have either from the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight? So I have a little bit of a curveball here. Instead of a big performance, it's kind of a lackluster performance. And it's more so one of those things that I think can segue into us being able to talk about the other matchup. Because, of course, we've talked a lot about Gonzaga versus UCLA, but we haven't talked very much about Baylor and Houston. And... The underwhelming performance by Buddy Beheim against Houston, I think, is the one that I actually really want to touch on. And you kind of brought a lot of stuff up to me off camera, so I'll kind of let you further elaborate on that. But this was this was a very, very tough, tough, tough game overall for a guy who has been arguably one of the top three players in the NCAA tournament overall start to finish. Um. 12 points, six rebounds, six rebounds, one assist, one of nine from three, three of 13 from the floor overall. I mean, this is a guy who has been lighting it up with 20, 25 point plus point performances in the opening rounds, the first handful of rounds of the NCAA, NCAA tournament. And then against Houston, kind of laid an egg to a certain extent in this one against a team that, you know, I kind of want to get your take on this with Houston. I don't really think Houston has faced very much adversity throughout this NCAA tournament. It's kind of interesting how they've been able to get the draws that they've gotten. Um, They faced all double-digit seeds 
on this road to the final four. And granted, that's not their fault. Shout out to the double digit seeded teams that have played above their weight. But I do kind of have my uh my gripes with whether or not they've played against a legitimately dangerous team in terms of NCAA tournament contention. Because I don't think that any of the teams they've caught on the way up were teams that we really saw as real threats to, you know, win the whole thing or even reach the Final Four to begin with. I think Syracuse has played against above its weight, but that had a lot to do with Buddy Bayham kind of playing insane. So um, first, your thoughts, obviously, on Buddy Bayham's performance. And then second, how do you feel about Houston going into the Baylor game, considering that Baylor is hands down their best matchup most dangerous most overall overwhelming matchup of the entire ncaa postseason so to start with buddy Bayheim, i was shocked that he was held to six points in the first half and he only scored six in the second half as well I just think that this is a testament to how great Houston's defense is. And I think that's one thing that we're going to talk about later when we mentioned their matchup with Baylor. Houston is the second best scoring defense in the country outside of Loyola Chicago. I mean, that's a test. I think, you know, the fact that they were able to hold um, Buddy Bayheim to 12 points, they were able to hold Joe Girard to 12 points. Not even just that, but looking at the second round, they held Ethan Thompson in check for that game as well. I mean, it, they they held Gerard Lucas of Oregon State to eight points. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're holding all these top scorers, they're, the fact that they're holding all these top scorers in check is a testament to not only how great their defense is, but how great of a coach Calvin Sampson is because he had he has this team ready to go. And I think that it's not really about what it's, – it's not really about who they play. It's just how they play. I think if they are able to hold opponents in check on defense, they're going to win games, especially when you have your toughest challenge right now, Baylor coming up with guys like Jared Butler, National Player of the Year candidate, Davion Mitchell, who's a great player, Masio Teague, who stepped up big for them in the last matchup, mm-hmm. in, in their last matchup against Arkansas. I think it's imperative that Houston's defense plays has a phenomenal has a phenomenal game against Baylor or has a phenomenal game against Baylor because they they've held all these opponents in check where the standard is you hold them below 60 points a game you hold them below 65 points a game and I think that's going to require guys like Quentin Grimes and guys like you know Marcus Sasser as well to not only get it done on the offensive side, but to get it done on the defensive side. So I'm, I'm not expecting anything less. I think that Houston has to get it done on defense in order for them to win this game against Baylor. So I think I'm going to swing it back to you in this way. So the threshold you said is about 60 points. I do agree with that. They caught Rutgers 63-60, uh, Syracuse 62-46. to That was a blowout significantly, but still nonetheless. And then Oregon State, was a circumstance it was 67 to 61 so do you believe that in order for Houston to win against Baylor the key factor of this game is it a player specifically or is it strictly from a defensive standpoint you got to keep Baylor under 60 for this to be a game 
I feel like it can go both ways. I think, yes, they need to step up on defense, but if I had to pick a player, I would think it's Deshaun, it's Deshaun Giroux because if specifically you're looking for a defender that can limit their best player, that can hold their best player in check, it's Deshaun Giroux. It's a Deshaun Giroux. He's the guy, who, who was the guy that was guarding Blade Bayheim for most of the Syracuse game? Giroux. Who was the other guy? Who, who was the guy that's been guarding Ethan Thompson for most of the game? Giroux. Who was the guy that was guarding Ron Harper Jr. in the Rutgers game? Giroux. So there's a common denominator with how, how successful their defense has been this season, but there's also the common denominator by holding the top player, the top opposing player in check. And that's Dijon Giroux. I mean, he is their best defender on the team. He's a guy who you can rely on to shut down the opposing player. They're the best opposing player. So I think as a team, yes, defense defense is huge. I think they have to limit it. I think their key factor is holding uh, Baylor to either 60 or 65 points between 60 and 65 points on the offensive side, because that seems like their magic. That, that seems like their, their average number. Um, but yeah, Deshaun Giroux, this is a guy that I'm expecting to guard Jared Butler. I'm expecting him to match up against Masio Teague, Davion Mitchell as well. This is a guy who can get switched on and off of him. I think that, yeah, Quentin Grimes might be the guy that takes over defending uh, Masio Teague. But th- this is a very defensive match. This is a very interesting matchup considering that Baylor has, I believe it's the sixth best scoring offense in the country and and uh houston is a top two defense that's mm-hmm. a very interesting matchup and i expect it could go either way honestly because i think baylor could shoot the ball efficiently early and catch houston off guard but then houston on the other hand could play some solid defense and shut jared butler down in the first half shut mossy Teague down in the first half they could honestly hold baylor to 25 points in the first half. And it's going to be a, a task. Mm. But this team has the potential to hold Baylor to at least 25 points in the first half. At most, it could be 40. But, man, the magic number is the, – the magic average, I'll say, is 60 to 65. Because if they're able to hold Baylor, a team of this caliber, to 60 to 65 points total – I would say that's a win. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to move over to the Baylor side of things because, honestly, you're saying the range is 60 to 65 points, and the lowest that they've scored in this tournament is 62 in the win against Villanova. Other than that, 76 against Wisconsin and 81 against Arkansas. So with that being the case, now, granted, I won't say that any of those teams have the kind of defensive capabilities that Houston does. I think Arkansas maybe is the most – overall talented team from a defensive standpoint with the kind of guys that they have uh, like Moses Moody from a, from a length standpoint to be able to play defense. Now, I think one of the most interesting matchups from the Baylor perspective defensively actually will be Davion Mitchell potentially being on Quentin Grimes for most of the game as a backcourt defender. Davion Mitchell is definitely their best, most elite defender. And Quentin Grimes is the primary, uh, facilitator primary offensive creator for Houston and I think that their main focus 
uh, being Baylor's main focus should be to try to take Quentin Grimes out of his game. So I think that they're going to try to throw multiple bodies with him with Davion Mitchell being the main guy to shadow him a lot. But don't be surprised if you see Masi Oteague on him a couple plays um, early in the game. Don't be surprised if you see Jared Butler on him defensively early in the in a couple of games. And then Davion Mitchell closes out the game <laughs> defensively by playing very, very solid man-to-man defense against him to close out the game, to lock up, and hopefully help Baylor move forward. What do you think is going to be the big thing for Baylor in terms of winning the game? Because I understand that Houston is who they are, but Baylor has been who they've been all year long. And outside of a couple hiccups here and there against some teams in the Big 12, Baylor has been one of those teams not to be messed with, and so far they've proven it throughout the tournament as well. So what do you think is going to be the key for them to win this game? So – I just want to say one quick thing about Houston and then I want to talk about Baylor. I think Houston does have offensive weapons outside of Grimes to the point where if they do lock up Grimes and he struggles in the first half, I feel like a mm-hmm. guy like Giroux or Sasser can pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. But this Baylor backcourt, this Baylor trio of Jared Butler, Masio Teague, and Davion Mitchell, this is going to be the thing that either helps or hurts Baylor in terms of winning this game against against Houston. I think if all three of them score over 15 points, they win this game. If all three of them score below 15 points, they lose this game. I think that it, if they struggle in the first half shooting, they're going to lose this game because I think it's about how early and often they make shots. I think that's, that's sort of the thing that I've been referring to with Gonzaga to this point, Gonzaga's opponents more or less, because the thing to really take out Gonzaga, the way to take out Gonzaga is to make shots early and often and, and force turnovers on the other side. I feel like it's different because I I feel like it's going to be a lot easier for Houston to shut down Baylor because Houston's a great defensive team, but Baylor is a great offensive team. So I think it's just a matter of, which side is going to favor more? Is it going to be Houston's defense or is it going to be Baylor's offense? I mean, Baylor has one of the best three-point shooting field goal percentages in the country. Um, you know, and especially between the three, the three players, Butler, Masio Teague, and Davion Mitchell, they average a combined 46.4 points a game. So this is a this is a trio that I think can can really shut down Houston's defense early. I think they can cause a lot of problems for Houston's defense early, especially Davion Mitchell, because I feel like he is the backbone of this, of this trio um, for back for Baylor's backcourt. I just think that it also really comes down to how much I would say Houston's defense, Houston's defense is able to slow down Baylor because you know, they're so used to controlling the tempo early in the game where they set the tone early in the game of how they're going to how of how this game is going to go. Baylor is very Baylor has the Baylor has the firepower to win this game. It's just a matter of if they are able to make the shots that's going to help them win the game. And that's where I feel like my biggest issue is with them, because if they struggle 
you know Houston's going to get it done on the other hand with guys like Quentin Grimes and Marcus Sasser and Deshaun Giroux, especially considering that those three guys are getting it done on both sides of the floor. So it's going to be tough. Yeah, so with that being the fact that we've covered all four teams, we've kind of touched on every single matchup with as many angles as we can kind of find considering the circumstances. And between the final four game coming up this upcoming Saturday, we're recording this on um, Wednesday, March 31st. The championship game is the following Monday, so we won't have a chance to initially react to this from a podcast standpoint. So, Ryan, what we're going to do to close out the pod is first pick our winners in the final four matchups. Do we think that the Baylor-Gonzaga collision is going to take place? And then make your pick on the record for who you believe will be hoisting up the championship trophy at the end of Monday's game. So first for the Gonzaga-UCLA matchup, I think Gonzaga is going to win. Um, It just comes down to whether or not UCLA shuts down Drew Timmy early, but I feel like Drew Timmy is going to be too much for UCLA's front court. Um, I also feel like it's going to open it up for guys like Jalen Suggs to have a great game. I think Jalen Suggs, this is the breakout game for him. He has to go off for this game. And he has, I think, you know, I'm not expecting him to, I'm not expecting him to get a triple double, but a triple double is the exclamation point that he has to solidifying his case as a top two pick, possibly a first overall pick. So I think that it really just comes down to whether or not um, UCLA is able to shut down Drew Timmy. I think if, you know, if they're able to shut him down, UCLA can get the win, but it's going to be very hard for them to do that. So I picked Gonzaga to go to the championship on the other side with Baylor and Houston. I'm going to go with Houston because I think that, Whoa. I think that this defense is going to be able to stop Jared Butler, Masio Teague and Davion Mitchell. I think that, you know, the fact that they are, I think the biggest criticism is that they haven't played the best competition, but this is a great defense going up against a great offense. I'm going to say a hot take and this may, this may or may not, this may or may not fare well for me. So hear me out. Jerry Butler, Davion Mitchell and Masi Teague combine for 25 points. Whoa. For 25. That's it between the three of them. I'm going to, yeah, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll boost it up to 30, okay, 30 points. 30. So about 10 per maybe yes. somebody might kind of overlap yeah. somebody. I think okay. that, I think that one guy may have a better game than the rest, Mm. but this is about a defensive matchup. I think defensively, I trust Houston more because they've proven time and time again that they can get it done on on defense. I think Jajon Giroux, this is a guy that I expect to be on their best player. He's going to be on Jared Butler. I think he's going to, I don't think he's going to lock up Jared Butler and hold him for zero points. But I think he's going to hold him down significantly to the point where I feel like he's either going to score somewhere between eight and eight and 12 points a game. So I think if they're able to shut Jared Butler down, I think that opens the window for them to shut down uh, Davion Mitchell, the backbone of this trio. And then all that leaves is Masi Oteague. And we, we've seen that we've seen Masi Oteague have big games in the past, but I don't think it's going to be enough for Baylor to get the win especially against Houston's team. But remember the magic number. Remember the magic average. 
60 to 65 points. If Houston's able to hold Baylor to 60 to 65 points, they're going to get the win. Wow. You guys heard it here, bro. Houston upsets Baylor with a chance to go to the national championship. I have to completely go left. I can't lie with this one. I love how UCLA has been playing so far this postseason, but I got Gonzaga. I think that the big guy in this one, I think, is going to be Corey Kispert. I think that his three-point shooting is going to be pretty huge in this game. I Don't be surprised if Drew Timmy goes for another 20-piece because I don't think that UCLA has anybody inside that will be able to really hang with him. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of banging taking place down low, but Drew Timmy is so well out towards the perimeter that I wouldn't be surprised if he really goes crazy in this game. And then for Baylor, I think the thing about them is that they're so uh, uh, multifaceted from an offensive standpoint. Don't get me wrong. At the end of the day, I do agree with you when it comes to Houston, that the fact that they do have a a handful of guys that they can maybe turn to. But Jarrell, for example, against Buddy Bayheim and the Syracuse Orange, I mean, he only had, I mean, he had not, he was, he was pretty much a game manager that did most of his dirt on the defensive end. He had nine points, eight rebounds and eight assists. And although that's a great uh, stat uh, stat line overall, it wasn't anything that necessarily meant that he was going to be a legitimate offensive threat. Sasser had 12 points and four rebounds in the game. And a guy who comes to mind for them who might play a bit of a big role, considering that Baylor plays more through their guards than their big men is Justin Gorham for Houston. He's a guy that, typically on the season has been pretty good um as a buckets and boards guy 8.5 points per game 8.7 rebounds per game shooting nearly 50 percent from the floor i think he could be huge and he had 13 points as the second leading scorer against syracuse i think he could be somebody that's really interesting in that game against baylor too but i think the big thing for me is that i think that davion mitchell is going to take on the defensive responsibility against quentin grimes the same way you expect jerome to do the same against a guy like Jared Butler. And I think that that's going to be what really is interesting because I think Quentin Grimes means more to Houston's offense than Jared Butler means to Baylor's offense. And I think that when you take those two guys out, if you're asking which supporting cast has the best ability to continue to make shots and put the ball in the basket, I'm going to trust Baylor more because although that you can put Jerome on Butler, is whoever going to be going up against Masio T going to be able to hold T? Is uh, is whoever has to go up against Davion Mitchell going to be able to hang with Davion Mitchell? I think those are two guys that are going to be really interesting in this game. I think when you look against, when you look across the board, it's going to just be overall kind of interesting how they go about handling things from a defensive scheme standpoint because there's a lot of different guys for Baylor that can give you offense while I feel as though Houston, although I wouldn't say they're limited, still kind of rely very heavily on one guy more so than, than anyone else. I think the one thing that I'll say in response to, um, you know, selecting Baylor for their offense, it's about making shots. And I think if they're able to make those shots, they win the game because it's going to put a lot of pressure on Houston to make tough shots making tough shots. I Maybe, mean, of course you, you got to make yeah. shots to win the game, but you yeah, mean like making, making tough, tough shots, gotcha. making tough shots. I think it's going to, it's going to benefit Baylor if they're able to make these tough shots because Houston is going to be put under a lot of pressure. If Baylor starts to get going offensively and Houston can't make the stops necessary, but I think it's just going to be very interesting to see if, if Baylor is going to make the tough shots when 
they need to make the tough shots. And Houston, it's about the stops. Like we mentioned, it's, you know, it's about whether or not they're able to hold this backcourt trio to close to 30 points. Like I mentioned, uh, 30 points combined, but it's just, it's this, this is going to be one of the best final fours that we've seen in a while. And I think that this final four matchup between Baylor and Houston, this is an overtime worthy matchup. This could either be a low scoring defensive battle or a high scoring offensive shootout. I think that's going to be really interesting. I'm kind of glad that you threw that out there because I do think that that really could be the kind of matchup that we get. I mean, we saw two high potent offenses in Arkansas and Baylor go at it. And this thing, I mean, Baylor cracked 80, Arkansas hit 72 in a game where essentially Arkansas had five guys have, uh, have double figures in the game and Baylor had a, uh, a really great game where Masio Teague went off for 22 points. So you, they easily can show you, they easily have shown that on one end in a game against Arkansas, they can put up 80 on you, but in a defensive struggle against a team like Villanova, they can win a, they can win a grind out game that is 62 to 51. So they've shown it on both spectrums. The question is with a team like Houston, who has to face that same kind of adversity, what will they do if Baylor jumps out on them first? So I think that's really interesting that you touched on earlier in our breakdown for this matchup that Houston and UCLA in terms of their matchup, both need to be punching early and often and make things very difficult for Baylor and Gonzaga early because it's going to be hard to close games against two very disciplined teams. So you need to make the gap large early so that they're playing from behind and playing with desperation rather than with control. So the close of the podcast, you got Houston versus Gonzaga in the NCAA the, the championship game. And I've got Gonzaga and Baylor. Who do you have winning the championship this upcoming Monday? I'm going to go with Gonzaga. I think that, you know, Gonzaga, I think Gonzaga is very much like Baylor where they have a lot of offensive firepower to make the shots when they need to. But if I trust the team more to go 32 and 0 and take out a defense like Houston, it's Gonzaga. Um, now, granted, I don't think that Drew Timmy is going to have the games that he's been playing against Houston. I don't think that Jalen Suggs is going to be as much of a factor in this game as he's been in the past couple of games. I think it's just going to be a team effort to knock out Houston, because when you talk about, you know, the fact that Andrew Nemhart had a huge game against Creighton, I think it's going to be a guy like him that that steps up and he's the X factor to for Gonzaga to win against Houston. I think that it could be it's not going to be a a a 15 point 20 point blowout. I think it's going to be a 5 point 10 point like battle between these two teams because I feel like they both have the offensive power or offensive firepower to make shots when they need to. They both have the defensive power to make stops when they need to. So this is a game where I feel like it's not going to be high scoring. And I think that it could go, it could range anywhere from 65 to 70 points total from either team. Because I think that, you know, if if Corey Kispert's struggling, if Drew Timmy's struggling, if Jalen Suggs is struggling, they're not going to score a lot. So it's going to rely on guys like Joel Ayayi and Andrew Nemhart to make the shots when they need to. But on Houston's side, I mean, if they're if they're able to knock it, if they're able to do 
what teams haven't been able to do so far, and that's shut down Drew, T- Drew Timmy early in the game, then they, they have a great chance of winning this game. But honestly, I think Gonzaga wins. I, I want to say 75 to 67. I think it's interesting that you say that you think it might be a little bit of a uh, defensive struggle to a certain extent. I think if if you get the matchup of Gonzaga versus Houston, I think that's fireworks written all over it. I think that's one of those games that could be really, really potent because of the fact that both of these teams can't put up points in a hurry. And it's funny that you talk about a team effort being necessary to beat a team like Houston. Houston is very elite defensively, but I don't think they've ever seen a team that has four legitimate scoring options across the board the way that a team like Gonzaga does three primary guys who can average about 20 points per game and can give you about 25 plus on any given night. So I think that'll be one of the most interesting things if Houston were to run into a team like Gonzaga in the championship game. For me, I have Gonzaga versus Baylor and I'm taking Gonzaga as well, not only for the perfect season, but out of the fact that I just simply think that they have been the best team in basketball all season long, and I don't see why that would stop in front of Baylor. I think the biggest thing with them, and I think it's going to be really interesting, and I'm not going to call it, but I will say that I would not be surprised if this was an overtime game. Um, I say that mainly out of the fact that I think that Baylor has the kind of defense to help keep them in games and go blow for blow with Gonzaga. I think the biggest thing for them is going to be what their bench production looks like, what they what they get from some of these guys in this shortened rotation. I think one of the guys that comes to mind for me, interestingly enough, is another guard and Adam Flagner, uh, Flagler for um, for Baylor, uh, sophomore guard for them who averages about nine points on the season and had a really big game in uh, um, in the in the matchup against Villanova. That was a game where they were struggling from three. The team shot three of 19 overall from three in that game, and Flagler was the one who hit two of those three threes to help kind of keep them afloat as he has 16 points off the bench. It's going to be guys like that who I don't know are necessarily going to get a ton of minutes in a matchup um against Gonzaga in 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 a championship game but I think for the fact that these guys are potentially going to get burned I think what they do when they are there on the floor is going to be really huge I think the guy that everybody might need to watch out for when it comes to Gonzaga and what they're doing overall I mean I think realistically enough Drew Timmy is obviously the first guy that comes to mind but I I have I'm hard-pressed to kind of look at this Gonzaga team and not think that although Corey Kispert, Suggs, and Timmy have pretty much done what they've done throughout the entire regular season and translated it to the postseason, I'm hard-pressed to believe that Andrew Nimhart or Joel Ayayi do not finally have that breakout game to kind of help in a matchup between the Bulldogs and the Bears. So I'm going to take Gonzaga. But I see this as being a knock and knockdown, drag out kind of battle. So I think either way, whether Gonzaga takes on Houston or takes on uh, takes on Baylor, it's going to be really interesting to see what the philosophy is in winning this game. Whether it's a defensive struggle or an offensive or a battle of two pow- offensive powerhouses, because I think regardless of which which team they face, I think it's going to be. One of those is up in the air. Sorry, UCLA. I just think Gonzaga is too scary. So I'm just projecting them already. So this is a good transition to our question of the day for our fans. Who do you believe will advance to the championship game? 
And who do you believe will win the championship game? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk Podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.